521. Chapters 7 and 8 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Book talk begins at 834. Welcome to Craplet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 521. Go. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I think still, apparently. <laughs> it's getting harder to tell. If you're not actually sick, then what's the ennui? But things that are keeping me going. The game of Go, I just found on eBay a rather inexpensive magnetic Go board, which I was very happy about the magneticness of it. That seemed like a good idea. So Aaron and I are going to learn how to play because we have the time now still. So <laughs> seize the day, as it were. <laughs> Speaking of other CZ the day things for you, I've gone back in time and made sure that all of the premium episodes ever are available on the app. That means for Windows phones, Android phones, and iOS phones or devices, you should be able to access all of the premium books if you are a premium subscriber. There's nothing I can do about that to make them free. They are part of the premium feed and I can't, I can't retroactively change that. So how to get access to all of the books that were premium books ever. Go to craftlit.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. And on that page, you'll see a pink bar that says get access to premium content. That will take you to a My Libsyn page. And from there, you can sign up. Once you have signed up slash signed in to your subscription, go back to the app, open the app, sign in there with the same information that you use to sign in on that website and it will sync you up and you may have to close and then reopen the app itself to get all of the premium books to rejigger themselves into your feed but they will be there because we're going through rebuilding the website i can't change anything on the website right now either so that I apologize for. This is just, just something that I can do through the app. And that's, that's the only one I can do. I also, on the Gumroad shop, which is linked to from the show notes as well, I've turned all of the books that I had there into pay what you like books. So you can get Bleak House there and things like that. I think some of the books I was able to make pay what you like from zero to whatever other ones, I had to do like one penny, and I didn't understand why, but that's just the way the site was set up. Uh, I think that's everything about 
premium books. As long as people are stuck inside and suffering, I will keep making sure that stuff is as available as I can make it for you. And, and I hope that helps, especially because on the Tuesday morning and Thursday evening book chats, I have heard more than a few times uh, how hard it is to have to wait for the next chapters. And I totally understand. There's just not much I can do about it. <laughs> Since half of the stuff that I talk about is time specific, at least when I mention it, whether you're listening in real time or not, pre-recording all of the episodes doesn't really work. So, you know, nothing's perfect. There it is. One of the things that is perfect, however, are if you've gone to Starbucks and you've had their little sous vide egg bites that they make, I found a recipe for a knockoff version of these little eggy cakes that are so good and gluten-free. And I'm in love. Super easy to make, especially if you have a pressure cooker or an instant pot. On the recipe, they make a big deal about using a, a silicon egg tray and it, you have to wedge it in there and fit. That's not true. Just get little mason jars and you can fit four mason jars in the bottom of an Instant Pot. I could fit a whole lot more in the bottom of my, my real pressure cooker. And then once you make them in the mason jars, you can just put a lid on them and stick them in the freezer or into the fridge and then have them later too. So I have that recipe on the show notes for this episode. So craftlit.com slash 521. And, and that was kind of exciting and a lot of fun to find. I love the internet when they do good knockoff recipes that you, <laughs> you can rely on that are actually do taste like the thing that they're supposed to taste like. That is a happy making thing. And last thing before we get to our book, Jody Taylor, my new favorite goofy series author, kind of Jasper Forty, I think I mentioned this last week, time traveler-ish books, which goofy and Jasper Forty does not mean devoid of heart. There are some very heartfelt moments, including there is a moment in uh, it's the second or third book that totally feels like the time traveler's wife. It's like, no, you can't go there. But you know, because they are ultimately happy books, everything works out just not the way you expect it to. But that's kind of like life, right? So that's okay. That's good. There is a bunch of books in the series and Anne Blanton found a prequel as well. They are all on Audible. The girl who does the readings does a beautiful job. And the first book in the series is called Just One Damned Thing After Another. And I cannot help but feel that that is just a perfect title for these days. <laughs> so if you're looking for something that is diverting and fun and time travel-y, that's fun, I think. There are lots more books that people are bringing up on Tuesday and Thursday book chats, and that information is going on to Facebook. We're also adding them now at the end of the show notes. However, if you are on Facebook, I apologize. There were several posts for, for several weeks. There were posts that had all of the links and the books listed and the links out to people's knitting patterns and things like that that they were working on that were kind of spinning ball of death posting. They never actually posted. I just clicked onto another tab while it was posting and didn't notice that they hadn't 
actually completed the posting process. So all of that has been rectified now. And Facebook now lets me tag posts. So on the right-hand sidebar on Facebook, you should be able to see a category tag section. Anything that's listed under book chats either has links to the book chats, information on the book chats, or the notes from the book chats so that you can go see what other people are reading and and check out some of the stuff that's getting recommended or things that are being advised against because that's just as important. But something that we don't advise against is skipping the Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Ah. This week, interesting stuff happens. I mean, it's not like anything interesting hasn't happened yet, but we get to see a lot more interplay between people and some very important interplay between Markham and Helen. There is exactly zero that I need to fill you in on prior to listening. Part of that is because the beginning of what we listen to today is actually chapter seven, which the teaser episode, we drew the the audio for that episode from chapter seven. So the first part you will recognize, and then it pretty rapidly goes into stuff that you haven't heard yet. Yeah, I think that's it. Just don't forget that Miss Millward is Mary, the unmarried elder daughter of the, the vicar, Reverend Millward. And she's the one who gets treated kind of badly by most of society in our little group of compatriots in the book. Oh, one thing. Marmion. M-A-R-M-I-O-N. This was one of Sir Walter Scott's big narrative ballad poems. The subtitle to this is A Tale of Flodden Field. It was written in 1808. It was very popular among the Bronte children. It was very popular everywhere because Sir Walter Scott was very popular everywhere. And I think that's everything. All right, here we go. Let's listen to chapters seven and eight of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Chapter seven, The Excursion. Not many days after this, on a mild sunny morning, rather soft underfoot, for the last fall of snow had only just wasted away, leaving yet a thin ridge here and there, lingering on the fresh green grass beneath the hedges. But besides them already, the young primroses were peeping amongst the moist dark foliage, and the lark above was singing of summer, and hope, and love, and every heavenly thing. I was out on the hillside, enjoying these delights, and looking after the well-being of my young lambs and their mothers, when, on glancing around me, I beheld three persons ascending from the vale below, they were Eliza Millwood, Fergus, and Rose. So I crossed the field to meet them, and being told they were going to Wildfell Hall, I declared myself willing to go with them, and offering my arm to Eliza, who readily accepted it in lieu of my brothers, told the latter he might go back, for I would accompany the ladies. I beg your pardon, exclaimed he. It's the ladies that are accompanying me, not I them. You had all a peep at this wonderful stranger but me and I can endure my wretched ignorance no longer. Come what would, I must be satisfied. So I begged Rose to go with me to the hall, and introduce me to her at once. She swore she would not, unless Miss Eliza would go too, so I ran to the vicarage and fetched her. We've come hooked all the way. 
as fond as a pair of lovers. And now you've taken her from me. And you want to deprive me of my walk and visit besides. Go back to the fields and your cattle, you lubbery fellow. You're not fit to associate with ladies and gentlemen like us that have nothing to do but run snooking about our neighbours' houses, peeping into their private corners and scenting out their secrets and picking holes in their coats when we don't find them ready-made to our hands. You don't understand such refined sources of enjoyment. Can't you both go? suggested Eliza, disregarding the latter half of the speech. Yes, both to be sure, cried Rose. The more the merrier. And I'm sure we shall want all the cheerfulness we can carry into that great, dark, gloomy room with its narrow lattice windows and its dismal old furniture, unless she shoulders into a studio again. So we went all in a body, and the meagre old maidservant that opened the door ushered us into an apartment, such as Rosa described to me as the scene of her first introduction to Mrs Graham. A tolerable space and lofty room, but obscurely lighted by the old-fashioned windows, the ceiling, panels and chimney-piece of grim black oak, the latter elaborately but not tastefully carved, with tables and chairs to match, an old bookcase on one side to the fireplace, stocked with a motley assemblage of books, and an elderly cabinet piano on the other. The lady was seated in a stiff-backed armchair, with a small round table containing a desk and a work-basket on one side of her, and a little boy on the other, who stood leaning his elbow on her knee and reading to her with wonderful fluency from a small volume that lay on her lap while she rested her hand on his shoulder and abstractly played with the long wavy curls that fell on his ivory neck. They struck me as forming a pleasant contrast to all the surrounding objects, but of course their position was immediately changed on our entrance. I could only observe the picture during the few brief seconds that Rachel held the door for our admittance. I do not think Mrs Graham was particularly delighted to see us. There was something indescribably chilly in her quiet, calm civility. But I did not talk much to her. Seating myself near the window, a little back from the circle, I called Arthur to me. And he and I and Sancho amused ourselves very pleasantly together, while the two young ladies baited his mother with small talk. And Fergus sat opposite with his legs crossed and his hands in his breeches pocket, leaning back in the chair and staring now up at the ceiling, now straight forward at his hostess, in a manner that made me strongly inclined to kick him out of the room, now whistling sotto voce to himself, a snatch of a favourite air, now interrupting the conversation or filling up a pause, as the case might be, with some impertinent question or remark. At one time it was, It amazes me, Miss Graham, how you could choose such a dilapidated rickety old place as this to live in. If you couldn't afford to occupy the whole house and have it mended up, why couldn't you take a neat little cottage? Perhaps I was too proud, Mr Fergus, replied she, smiling. Perhaps I took a peculiar fancy to this romantic old-fashioned place. But indeed, it has many advantages over a cottage. In the first place, you see, the rooms are larger and more airy. In the second place, the unoccupied apartments, which I don't pay for, may serve as lumber rooms if I have anything to put in them, and they are very useful for my little boy to run about in on rainy days, when he can't go out, and then there is the garden for him to play in, and for me to work in. You see, I have effected some little improvements already, continued she, turning to the window. There is a bed of young vegetables in that corner, and here 
are some snowdrops and primroses already in bloom, and there, too, is yellow crocus, just opening in the sunshine. But how can you bear such a situation? Your nearest neighbour's two miles distant, and nobody looking in or passing by. Rose will go stark mad in such a place. She can't put on life unless she sees half a dozen fresh gowns and bonnets a day, not to speak of the faces within. But you might sit watching at these windows all day long, and never see such as an old woman carrying her eggs to market. I'm not sure the loneliness of the place is not one of its chief recommendations. I take no pleasure in watching people pass the windows, and I like to be quiet. Oh, as good to say you wish we would all mind our own business and let you alone. No, I dislike extensive acquaintances, but if I have a few friends, of course, I am glad to see them occasionally. No one can be happy in internal solitude. Therefore, Mr. Fergus, if you choose to enter my house as a friend, I will make you welcome. If not, I must confess, I would rather you kept away. She then turned to address some observation to Rose or Eliza. And Mrs. Graham, said he again, five minutes after, we were disputing as we came along a question that you can readily decide for us, as it mainly regards yourself. And indeed, we often hold discussions about you, for some of us have nothing better to do than talk about our neighbours' concerns. And we, the indigenous plants of the soil, have known each other so long and talked to each other over so often that we are quite sick of that game. So that a stranger coming amongst us makes an invaluable addition to our exhausted source of amusement. Well, the question or questions you are required to solve. Hold your tongue, Fergus, cried Rose, in a fever of apprehension and wrath. I won't, I tell you. The question you are required to solve are these. First, concerning your birth, extraction and previous residence. Some will have it that you are a foreigner and some an Englishwoman. Some a native of the North Country and some of the South. Some say... Well, Mr. Fergus, I'll tell you. I'm an Englishwoman, and I don't see why anyone should doubt it. And I was born in the country, and neither in the extreme north nor south of our happy isle. And in the country I have chiefly passed my life. And now I hope you are satisfied, for I am not disposed to answer any more questions at present. Except this! No, not one more, laughed she, and instantly quitting her seat. She sought refuge at the window, by which I was seated, and, in very desperation to escape my brother's persecutions, endeavoured to draw me into conversation. Mr. Markham, said she, her rapid utterance and heightened colour too plainly evincing her disquietude, have you forgotten the fancy view you were speaking of some time ago? I think I must trouble you, now, to tell me the nearest way to it, for, if this beautiful weather continues, I shall perhaps be able to walk there, and take my sketch. I have exhausted every other subject for painting, and I long to see it. I was about to comply with her request, but Rosa would not suffer me to proceed. Oh, don't tell her, Gilbert, cried she. She shall go with us. It's Kate and Bay you're thinking about, I suppose, Mrs Graham. It is a very long walk, too far for you, and out of the question for Arthur. But we were thinking about making a picnic to see it some fine day, and if you will wait till the settled fine weather comes, I'm sure we shall all be delighted to have you amongst us. Poor Mrs Graham looked dismayed, and attempted to make excuses. But Rose, either compassionating her lonely life, or anxious to cultivate her acquaintance, was determined to have her, and every object was overruled. She was told it would only be a small party, and all friends. 
and the best view of all was from the cliffs, full five miles distance. Just a nice walk for the gentlemen, continued Rose, but the ladies will drive and walk by turns, for we shall have our pony carriage, which will be plenty large enough to contain little Arthur and three ladies together with your sketching apparatus and our provisions. So the proposal was finally acceded to, and after some further discussion respecting the time and manner of the projected excursion, we rose and took our leave. But this was only March. A cold, wet April, and two weeks of May passed over before we could venture forth on our expedition, with the reasonable hope of obtaining that pleasure we sought in our pleasant prospects. Cheerful society, fresh air, good cheer and exercise, without the alloy of bad roads, cold winds or threatening clouds. Then, on a glorious morning, we gathered our forces and set forth. The company consisted of Mrs and Master Graham, Mary and Eliza Millward, Jane and Richard Wilson, and Rose, Fergus, and Gilbert Markham. Mr Lawrence had been invited to join us, but for some reason, best known to himself, had refused to give us his company. I had solicited the faith myself. When I did go, he hesitated, and asked who was going. Upon my naming Miss Wilson among the rest, he seemed half inclined to go. But when I mentioned Mrs Graham, thinking it might be a further inducement, it appeared to have a contrary effect, and he declined it altogether, and... I confess the truth. The decision was not displeasing to me, although I could scarcely tell you why. It was about midday when we reached the place of our destination. Mrs Graham walked all the way to the cliffs, and little Arthur walked the greater part of it too, for he was now much more hardy and active than when he first entered the neighbourhood, and he did not like being in the carriage with strangers, while all his four friends, Mamma and Sancho and Mrs Markham and Miss Millwood, were on foot, journeying far behind or passing through distant fields and lanes. I have a very present recollection of that walk, along the hard, white, sunny road, shaded here and there with bright green trees, and adorned with flowery banks and blossoming hedges of delicious fragrances, all through pleasant fields and lanes, all glorious in the sweet flowers and brilliant verdure of delightful May. It was true, Eliza was not beside me, but she was with her friends in the pony carriage, as happy, I trusted, as I was. And even when we pedestrians, having forsaken the highway for a shortcut across the fields, beheld the little carriage far away, disappearing amid the green, embowering trees, I did not hate those trees for snatching my dear little bonnet and shawl from my sight, nor did I feel all those intervening objects lay between my happiness and me, for, to confess the truth, I was too happy in the company of Mrs Graham to regret the absence of Eliza Millwood. The former, it is true, was most provokingly unsociable at first, seemingly bent upon talking to no one but Mary Millward and Arthur. She and Mary joined along together, generally with the child between them, but where they were permitted, I was walked on the other side of her, Richard Wilson taking the other side of Miss Millward, and Fergus roving here and there according to his fancy, and after a while she became more friendly, and at length I succeeded in securing her attention almost entirely to myself, and then I was happy indeed, for whenever she did condescend to converse, I liked to listen. Where her opinions and sentiments tallied with mine, it was her extreme good sense, her exquisite taste and feeling that delighted me. Where they differed, it was still her uncompromising boldness in the avowal or defence of that difference, her earnestness and keenness that piqued my fancy. And even when she angered me by her unkind words or looks, and her uncharitable conclusions respecting me, 
It only made me the more dissatisfied with myself for having so unfavourably impressed her, and the more desirous to vindicate my character and disposition in her eyes, and, if possible, to win her esteem. At length, our walk was ended. The increasing height and boldness of the hills had for some time intercepted the prospect, but on gaining the summit of the steep acclivity and looking downwards, an opening lay before us, and the blue sea burst upon our sight, deep violet blue, not deadly calm, but covered with glinting breakers, diminutive white specks twinkling on its bosom, and scarcely to be distinguished by the keenest vision from the little sea mews that sported above, their white wings glittering in the sunshine. Only one or two vessels were visible, and those were far away. I looked at my companion to see what she thought of this glorious scene. She said nothing, but she stood still and fixed her eyes upon it with a gaze that assured me she was not disappointed. She had very fine eyes. By the by, I don't know whether I told you before, but they were full of soul, large, clear, and nearly black, not brown, but very dark grey. A cool, reviving breeze blew from the sea, soft, pure, salubrious. It waved her drooping ringlets, and imparted a livelier colour to her usually too pallid lip and cheek. She felt its exhilarating influence, and so did I. I felt it tingling through my frame, but dare not give way to it while she remained so quiet. There was an aspect of subdued exhilaration in her face that kindled into almost a smile of exalted, glad intelligence as her eye met mine. Never had she looked so lovely. Never had my heart so warmly cleaved to her as now. Had we been left two minutes longer, standing there alone, I cannot answer for the consequences. Happily, for my discretion, perhaps for my enjoyment during the remainder of the day, we were speedily summoned to the repast. A very respectable collation, which rose, assisted by Miss Wilson and Eliza, who, having shared her seat in the carriage, had arrived with her a little before the rest, had set out upon an elevated platform overlooking the sea, and sheltered from the hot sun by a shelving rock and overhanging trees. Mrs Graham seated herself at distance from me. Eliza was my nearest neighbour. She exerted herself to be agreeable in her gentle and obtrusive way, and was no doubt as fascinating and charming as ever, if I could only have felt it. But soon my heart began to warm towards her once again. We were all very merry and happy together, as far as I could see, through the protracted social meal. When that was over, Rose summoned Fergus to help her gather up the fragments and the knives, dishes, etc., and restore them to the baskets. And Mrs Graham took her camp stool and drawing material, and having begged Miss Millward to take charge of her precious son, and strictly enjoined him not to wander from his new guardian's side, she left us, and proceeded along the steep stony hill to a lofty, more precipitous eminence, at some distance, whence a still finer prospect was to be had, where she preferred taking a sketch, though some of the ladies told her it was a frightful place, and advised her not to attempt it. When she was gone, I felt as if there was to be no more fun, although it is difficult to say what she had contributed to the hilarity of the party. No jests, and little laughter had escaped her lips, but her smile had animated my mirth. A keen observation or a cheerful word from her had insensibly sharpened my wits, and thrown interest over all that was done and said by the rest. Even my conversation with Eliza had been enlivened by her presence, though I knew it not, and now that she was gone, Eliza's playful nonsense ceased to amuse me, 
Nay, it grew wearisome to my soul, and I grew weary of amusing her. I felt myself drawn by an irresistible attraction to that distant point where the fair artist sat and plied her solitary task, and not long did I attempt to resist it. While my little neighbour was exchanging a few words with Mr Wilson, I rose and cannily slipped away. A few rapid strides and a little active clambering soon brought me to the place where she was seated, a narrow ledge of rock at the very verge of the cliff which descended with a steep precipitous slant quite down to the rocky shore. She did not hear me coming. The falling of my shadow across her paper gave an electric start, and she looked hastily round. Any other lady of my acquaintance would have screamed under such a sudden alarm. Oh, I didn't know it was you. Why did you startle me so? said she, somewhat testily. I hate anybody coming up to me so unexpectedly. Why, what did you take me for? said I. If I had known you were so nervous, I would have been more cautious, but... Well, never mind. What did you come for? Are they all coming? No, this little ledge could scarcely contain them all. I'm glad, for I'm tired of talking. Well, then, I won't talk. I'll only sit and watch your drawing. Oh, but you know I don't like that. Then I'll content myself with admiring this magnificent prospect. She made no objection to this and for some time sketched away in silence. But I could not help stealing a glance, now and then, from the splendid view at our feet, to the elegant white hand that held the pencil, and the graceful neck, and glossy raven curls that drooped over the paper. Now, thought I, if I had but a pencil and a morsel of paper, I could make a lovelier sketch than hers, admitting I had the power to delineate faithfully what is before me. But, though the satisfaction was denied me, I was very well content to sit beside her there and say nothing. "'Are you there still, Mr. Markham?' she said at length, looking round upon me, for I was seated a little behind on a mossy projection of the cliff. "'Why don't you go and amuse yourself with your friends?' "'Because I'm tired of them, like you. "'And then shall have enough of them tomorrow, or at any time hence. "'But you. "'I may not have the pleasure of seeing you again for I know not how long. "'What was Arthur doing when you came away?' He was with Miss Millward. Where you left him? All right, but hoping Mamma would not be long away. You didn't entrust him to me, by the by, I grumbled, though I had the honour of a much longer acquaintance. But Miss Millward has the art of conciliating and amusing children, I carelessly added, if she's good for nothing else. Miss Millward has many estimable qualities, which such as you cannot be expected to perceive or appreciate. Will you tell Arthur that I shall come in a few minutes? If that's the case, I will wait, with your permission, till those few minutes are passed, and then I can assist you to descend this difficult path. Thank you. I always manage best on such occasions without assistance. But at least I can carry your stool and sketchbook. She did not deny me this favour, but I was rather offended by her evident desire to be rid of me, and was beginning to repent my persistency when... She somewhat appeased me by consulting my taste and judgment about some doubtful matter in her drawing. My opinion happily met her approbation, and the improvement I suggested was adopted without hesitation. I have often wished in vain, said she, for another's judgment to appeal to, when I could scarcely trust the direction of my own eye and head, they having been so long occupied with the contemplation of a single object as to become almost incapable of forming a proper idea respecting it. That, replied I, 
is only one of many evils to which a solitary life exposes us. True, said she, and then again we relapsed into silence. About two minutes after, however, she declared her sketch complete and closed the book. On returning to the scene of our repast, we found all the company had deserted it, with the exception of three. Mary Millward, Richard Wilson and Arthur Graham. The younger gentleman lay fast asleep with his head pillowed on the lady's lap. The other was seated beside her, with a pocket edition of some classic author in his hand. He never went anywhere without such a companion wherewith to improve his leisure moments. All time seemed lost that was not devoted to study or exacted by his physical nature for the bare support of life. Even now, he cannot band himself to the enjoyment of that pure air and balmy sunshine, that splendid prospect and those soothing sounds, the music of the waves and the soft wind in the sheltering trees above him, not even with a lady by his side, though not a very charming one, I will allow. He must pull out his book and make the most of his time while digesting his temperate meal and reposing his weary limbs, unused to so much exercise. Perhaps, however, he spared a moment to exchange a word or glance with his companion now and then. At any rate, she did not appear at all resentful of his conduct, for her homely features were an expression of unusual cheerfulness and serenity, and she was studying his pale, thoughtful face with great complacency when we arrived. The journey homeward was by no means so agreeable to me as the former part of the day, for now Mrs. Graham was in the carriage, and Eliza Millwood was the companion of my walk. She had observed my preference for the young widow, and evidently felt herself neglected. She did not manifest her chagrin by keen reproach, or pouting sullen silence. Any or all of these I could easily have endured, or lightly laughed away, but she showed it by a kind of gentle melancholy, a mild reproachful sadness that cut me to the heart. I tried to cheer her up, and apparently succeeded in some degree before the walk was over. But in the very act, my conscience reproved me, knowing as I did that, sooner or later, the tie must be broken, and this was only nourishing false hopes and putting off the evil day. When the pony carriage approached as near Wellfell Hall as the road would permit, unless indeed it proceeded up the long, rough lane, which Mrs. Graham would not allow, the young widow and her son alighted, relinquishing the driver's seat to Rose, and I persuaded Eliza to take the latter's place, Having put her comfortably in, bid her take care of the evening air, and wished her a kind good night, I felt considerably relieved, and hastened to offer my services to Mrs. Graham, to carry her apparatus up the field. But she had already hung her campstool on her arm, and taken her sketchbook in her hand, and insisted upon bidding me adieu there and then, with the rest of the company. But this time, she declined my preferred aid in so kind and friendly manner, that I almost forgave her. Chapter 8. The Present Six weeks had passed away. It was a splendid morning about the close of June. Most of the hay was cut, but the last week had been very unfavourable, and now that the fine weather had come at last, being determined to make the most of it, I had gathered all the hands together into the hay field, and was working there myself in the midst of them, in my shirt sleeves with a light shady straw hat on my head, catching up armfuls of moist reeking grass, shaking it out to the four winds of heaven, at the head of a goodly file of servants and hirelings, intending so to labour from morning till night, with as much zeal and astuity as I could look for from any of them, as well as prosper the work from my own exertion, as to animate the workers by my example. 
when lo, my resolutions were overthrown in a moment by the simple fact of my brother running up to me and putting into my hand a small parcel, just arrived from London, which I'd been for some time expecting. I tore off the cover and disclosed the elegant and portable edition of Marmignon. I guess I know that's for, said Fergus, who stood looking on while I complacently examined the volume. That's for Miss Eliza now. He pronounced this with a tone and looked so prodigiously knowing that I was glad to contradict him. You're wrong, my lad, said I, and taking up my coat, I deposited the book in one of its pockets and then put it on. Now come here, you idle dog, and make yourself useful for once, I continued. Pull off your coat and take my place in the field till I come back. Till you come back? Where are you going, pray? No matter where that is, all that concerns you, and I shall be back by dinner at least. Oh, and I'm to labour here away till then, am I? And to keep all these fellows out at it besides? Well, well, I'll submit for once, in a way. Come on, lads, you must look sharp. I'm come to help you now, and woe be the man or woman either that pauses for a moment amongst you, whether to stare about him, or scratch his head, or blow his nose. No pretext will serve, nothing but work, 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 in the sweat of your face, etc, etc. Leaving him thus haranguing the people, more to their amusement than edification, I returned to the house, and having made some alterations in my toilet, hastened away to Walfell Hall with the book in my pocket, for it was destined for the shelves of Mrs. Graham. What? Then had she and you got on so well together as to come to the giving and receiving of presents? Not precisely, old book. This was my first experiment in that line, and I was very anxious to see the result of it. We had met several times since the Caton Bay excursion, and I had found she was not adverse to my company provided I confine my conversation to the discussion of abstract matters or topics of common interest. The moment I touched upon the sentimental or the complimentary or made the slightest approach to tenderness in word or look, I was not only punished by an immediate change in her manner at the time, but doomed to find her more cold and distant, if not entirely inaccessible when I next sought her company. This circumstance did not greatly disconcert me, however, because I attributed it, not so much to any dislike of my person as to some absolute resolution against a second marriage formed prior to the time of our acquaintance, whether from excess of affection for her late husband or because she had had enough of him and the matrimonial state together. At first, indeed, she had seemed to take a pleasure in mortifying my vanity and crushing my presumption, relentlessly nipping off bud by bud as they ventured to appear, and then, I confess, I was deeply wounded, though at the time stimulated to seek revenge, but latterly finding, beyond a doubt, that I was not that empty-headed coxcomb she had first supposed me. She had repulsed my modest advances in quite a different spirit. It was kind of serious, almost sorrowful displeasure, which I soon learnt carefully to avoid awakening. Let me first establish my position as a friend, thought I, the patron and playfellow of her son, the sober, solid, plain-dealing friend of herself, and then, when I have made myself fairly necessary to her comfort and enjoyment in life, as I believe I can, we'll see what next may be affected. So we talked about paintings, poetry and music, theology, geology and philosophy. Once or twice I lent her a book, 
and once she lent me one in return. I met her in her walks as often as I could. I came to her house as often as I dared. My first pretext for invading the sanctum was to bring Arthur a little waddling pup, of which Sancho was the father, and which delighted the child beyond expression, and consequently could not fail to please his mother. My second was to bring him a book, which knowing his mother's peculiarities, I had carefully selected, and which I submitted for her approbation before presenting it to him. Then I brought her some plants for a garden, in my sister's name, having previously persuaded Rose to send them, each of these times, I inquired after the picture she was painting from the sketch taken on the cliff, and was admitted into the studio, and asked my opinion or advice respecting its progress. My last visit had been to return the book she had lent me, and then it was that, in casually discussing the poetry of Sir Walter Scott, she had expressed a wish to see Mamiel, and I had conceived the presumptuous idea of making her a present of it, and, on my return home, Instantly sent for the smart little volume I had this morning received. But an apology for invading at the hermitage was still necessary, so I had furnished myself with a blue Moroccan collar for Arthur's little dog, and that being given and received with much more joy and gratitude on the part of the receiver than the worth of the gift or the selfish motive of the giver deserved, I ventured to ask Mrs Graham for one more look at the picture, if it was still there. Oh yes, come in, said she. I had met her in the garden. It is finished and framed, all ready for sending away, but give me your last opinion, and if you can suggest any further improvement, it shall be duly considered at least. The picture was strikingly beautiful. It was the very scene itself, transferred as if by magic to the canvas, but I expressed my approbation in guarded terms and few words for fear of displeasing her. She, however, attentively watched my looks, and her artist pride was gratified, no doubt, to read my heartfelt admiration in my eyes. But while I gazed, I thought upon the book, and wondered how it was to be presented. My heart failed me, but I determined not to be such a fool as to come away without having made the attempt. It was useless waiting for an opportunity, and useless trying to concoct a speech for the occasion. The more plainly and naturally thing was done, the better. I thought. So I just looked out the window to screw up my courage, and then I pulled out the book, turned around, and put it in her hand, with this short explanation. You were wishing to see Mamillon, Mrs Graham, and here it is, if you'll be so kind as to take it. A momentary blush suffused her face, perhaps a blush of sympathetic shame for such an awkward style of presentation. She gravely examined the volume on both sides, then silently turned over the leaves, knitting her brow the while, in serious cogitation, then closed the book, and turned from it to me, quietly asked the price of it. I felt the hot blood rush to my face. I'm sorry to offend you, Mr Markham, said she, but unless I pay for the book I cannot take it, and she laid it on the table. Why cannot you? Because, she paused and looked at the carpet, why cannot you? I repeated, with a degree of irascibility that roused her to lift her eyes and look me steadily in the face. Because I don't like to put myself under obligation that I can never repay. I am obliged to you already for your kindness to my son, but this grateful affection and your own good feelings must reward you for that. Nonsense, ejaculated I. She turned her eyes upon me again, with a look of quiet, grave surprise, that had the effect of a rebuke, whether intended for such or not. Then you won't take the book? I asked, more mildly than I had yet spoken. I will gladly take it, 
if you would let me pay for it. I told her the exact price, and the cost of the carriage besides, and in as calm a tone I could command. For, in fact, I was ready to weep with disappointment and vexation. She produced her purse, and coolly counted out the money, but hesitated to put it in my hand. Attentively regarding me, in a tone of soothing softness, she observed, You think yourself insulted, Mr. Markham. I wish I could make you understand that... that I... I do understand you perfectly, said I. You think that if you were to accept that trifle from me now, I should presume upon it hereafter. But you're mistaken. If you'll only oblige me by taking it, believe me, I shall build no hope upon it, and consider this no precedent for future favours, and... It is nonsense to talk about putting yourself under obligation to me when you know that in such a case the obligation is entirely on my side, the favour on yours. Well then, I'll take you at your word, she answered, with a most angelic smile, returning the odious money to her purse, but remember, I will remember what I have said, but do not you punish my presumption by withdrawing your friendship entirely from me, or expect me to atone for it by being more distant than before said I, extending my hand to take leave, for I was too much excited to remain. Well then, let us be as we were, replied she, frankly placing her hand in mine, and while I held it there, I had much difficulty to refrain from pressing it to my lips, but that would be suicidal madness. I have been bold enough already, and this premature offering had well nigh given the death blow to my hopes. It was with an agitated, burning heart and brain that I hurried homewards, regardless of that scorching noonday sun, forgetful of everything but her and I had just left, regretting nothing but her impenetrability, and my own precipitancy, and want of tact, fearing nothing, nothing but halt. I will not bore you with my conflicting hopes and fears, my serious cogitations and resolves. All right then, several crises averted, right? We had our excursion. Everybody got to have a nice day out in the nature. And that turns out to be a good thing. We've learned some interesting things about our Mrs. Graham. She jumped a mile when Gilbert surprised her. But he talks about her being on a ledge that wouldn't hold any more people. So she's not frightened easily. So that's a piece of information to hold on to. We've also learned that even though Mrs. Graham seems to be kind of overly protective in some ways of her son, Arthur, we also now know that he reads quite well. He reads with great fluency, which means she's been teaching him how to read. So she's not preventing him from learning or learning about the world, but she is definitely restricting his interactions with the world, which is kind of an interesting position for her to be in herself and be putting her son in. We also learn that she is quite aware of what's going on with Miss Mary Millward and how she is being treated by others. That's the person who she trusts Arthur with and says Miss Millward has many admirable qualities. Hint, hint, as though you big doofuses haven't noticed. She's really pretty awesome. So Helen is turning out to be a very, 
very complicated character. And nowhere do we see it expressed better than her jumping when she's painting and is surprised by Gilbert, followed up by, it's nice of you to have ordered this book. I have to pay you for it. Anne Bronte's doing some really interesting things, I think, in that particular section. Because as far as we know, Anne Bronte was never put into this position that Mrs. Graham is being put into by Gilbert. However, she has clearly been paying attention either in her readings that she did of the kind of Byronic hero and anti-hero types, or it's something that she saw while she was being a governess. She once again wisely puts these words into Gilbert Markham's mouth because no woman, as far as I can tell from everything else that we've read on Craftlet, would have been able to get away with saying what Gilbert says out loud towards the end of chapter eight, when he says, no, I understand you perfectly. You think that if you were to accept that trifle from me now, I should presume upon it hereafter. So it's, no, I get it. You think that I'm giving you a gift so that I can make you feel guilty about it later and steal a kiss or do something inappropriate or get something back from you because you owe me. Whether men knew that they did that or not, whether women know that they have done that or not, I don't know. I don't know how conscious that kind of manipulation is back in this time or even now, but we did see some very similar things happening with Sinjin in Jane Eyre towards the end of the book, that, that kind of you owe me manipulation uh, with the extra layer of, and God wants this to happen with uh, Sinjin and Jane. Here, he makes it clear that he understands that this could look very transactional and therefore kind of unpleasant to, to be unpleasantly beholden to somebody who you really don't want to be beholden to. But he is very clear in response by saying it out loud, by acknowledging that this could have been a moment of manipulation and then going on to explain not only that he is not going to do that, but that he understands how he needs to make it clear that he will not do that because perception is reality. He wants to make sure that what she is perceiving is what he is intending. And that's huge. Somebody call in and remind me if we have seen anybody do this before, 206-350-1642. I can't remember anyone being this upfront and clear about romantic politics in anything we've read. Maybe in Herland, but that because because that's satire that falls into a different kind of world as far as the writing goes. But very interesting, having been as clear and as open as he was, Gilbert does convince Helen to take the gift. It's a big deal. I mean, it certainly seemed to me like that was a, a huge hurdle for him to have crossed with her. And then, of course, he goes off and, and questions and wonders if he did the right thing. And ugh. But in that moment, it was pretty impressive. We also have learned Helen, Helen seems to have come from some amount of money. She seems classy is what it comes down to. She seems very classy. And at the beginning of chapter eight here, Gilbert's out in the fields sweating with his hands. Fergus coming in and taking over is very funny. You know, all right, 
time time to get cracking. I'm I'm here to make sure y'all work real hard. I love Fergus. He's just a goofball. But after we have that snapshot of Gilbert in the fields working with his hands as a gentleman farmer, we then move on to him talking about all of the kinds of things that he has been discussing with Helen Graham. And it's not a small list. Painting, poetry, music, theology, geology, and philosophy. Dude knows some stuff. And the, I guess, corollary to that is, maybe it's a surprise that he knows all that. It should also be kind of a surprise that she does too. Not that, obviously, we're talking about the Brontes here. Not that it was a surprise for women to be educated, but it does seem to be a bit of a surprise that an educated woman would be just talking to a guy about all of these topics. They're not seeing each other. There's no formal relationship. She is a widow, which puts her in kind of a kind of a, a position where it might be easier for her to get away with doing this. But again, I can't think of another book where we've seen a woman who isn't speaking to her employer, like Jane in Rochester, who has freewheeling conversations like this. Now, Anne Bronte had more of a life in many ways than I think people give her credit for, because she did spend quite a few years as a governess. She loves children. We talked about that before. And even though she didn't go to Brussels with Emily and Charlotte, further training in French when they thought they were going to open a school. She did travel with the family that she was working for. And where did she travel? She traveled to Scarborough, the place that the picnic is taking place at in Chapter 7 is a little bit north of Scarborough. And actually, Eden and Maya found the location. So Eden was able to insert the actual name of the cliffs that Helen Graham would very likely have been sitting on and painting from. So that was kind of fun. I just love that. I also loved the moment where <laughs> when Fergus was taking over, he had the line, and woe be to that man or woman either that pauses for a moment amongst you. How can you tell that a woman wrote this book when she did? <laughs> because Fergus says, man, nor woman either. There are so many hints dropped throughout this book that it's not written by a guy. I can't think of another, well, maybe Wilkie Collins, now that I think about it. Maybe Wilkie Collins would have written that line. But I don't think Dickens would have thrown or women either into a line of dialogue talking about people working with their hands out in a field, at least not humorously. So go Anne Bronte. Before I let you go, we have a couple of voicemails that I wanted to let you know about and, uh, and respond to. So here we go. Hello, Heather. This is Ann Blanton, um, A.T. Blanton on Facebook and Two-Step at Ravelry. And I guess that's it. I had some comments. I just listened to Episode 520, Chapter 6. Uh, my first comment, public domain books. I'm wondering if... Agatha Christie that B.J. Harris just did was one of the ones that just recently got kicked over into the public domain because they added some years. I guess it's the beginning of this year. I was all excited about it, and then everything happened, and I forgot to look to see what was different. But anyway, I know there's a lot more stuff available now, and it was just sort of a passing thought. My second comment 
which is about the book. Yay. Loving the book, love the narrator, both of them. But you had said that you don't remember whether you had mentioned about the title's myth and how it relates to the different members of the family. And I don't remember you mentioning it before today for Tenant, but back when you did Pride and Prejudice, I think you just, you know, delineated all that, which made it much clearer to me, even though I'd read the book a zillion times before I listened to you explain it. But anyway, yes, you have mentioned it before, just not in relationship to the tenant of Wildfeld Hall. So, yay you. Third thing about the gibbous, the waxing gibbous moon, this is just a thought. We'll see whether it pans out. I'm wondering if we are waxing towards more reveals. You know, we all, like you said, we obviously know there's more to going on here than we know about. And I'm, I just, it would be interesting if the big reveal happened on a full moon. It's just a thought in my weird brain. And the third thing, which also kind of relates to tenant, but is sort of a, not a funny haha, but funny, wow, what a coincidence sort of thing. My sister and I both love, love Craftlet and she's listening to tenant. And she said, did you, did you find anything interesting about the name of the main, of the main female character? And I went, hmm. And, of course, at that moment, my mind went blank as to Helen Graham's name. Well, she said, her name's Helen Graham. And I went, oh, my gosh, because our grandmother's first name was Helen, and she was married to a man whose first name was Graham. So what do you know? A little bit of coincidence floating around in the universe sort of landed splat on top of Tenant of Wildfeld Hall. Gosh, how many years later? 200 years later? Anyway. That's it. That's what's going on. And thank you again for everything you do for us. You have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye. So, Anne, I totally forgot because it was 14 years ago that I talked about the Miss M-I-S-S prefix to people's names and that I did it back in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, I'm not surprised, but I'm really impressed that you found that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's been a while. The second thing is, I love, I love that you have a relative named Helen Graham. It can only mean good things. And finally, I am going to be paying attention to the moon now. I have no idea because I wasn't paying attention to it the last couple times I read the book. So who knows if more revelations will be made under a full moon. We shall see. And then we have a helpful safety message from Tara. Hello, Heather. It's Tara Worcester, Worcester-Wait, kind of everywhere. You are allowed to play this on the podcast, by the way. I have finally gotten into a good headspace and a low enough blood pressure to fundamentally absorb the tenant of Wildfell Hall. So I started listening today. It is Tuesday, May 19th. It is gloomy and rainy and overcast. It is perfect weather to absorb Wildfoot Hall. I was listening to your talk about mask structure with the woven versus jersey knit, and I can confirm I have a scientist friend who did, in fact, tell me that the masks do help, and having a filter of some sort in it helps even more. Uh, He suggested 
three layers of uh, cotton blend t-shirt or two layers of tea towel, believe it or not, was his uh, recommendation. But he also very heavily hammered hard about the wearing the mask out of your house once. It needs to be cleaned whenever you get home. Now, cleaning can go anywhere from put a pot of water on to boil, put the mask in, filter and all, separated, of course, uh, and to boil it for 10 minutes, sanitize it. And the other method of sanitization recommended by the CDC is to uh, wash it on hot water, like over 140 degrees hot. Most machines can't do that, but as hot as your machine can get it, and then to put it in the dryer on max heat, again, over 140 degrees Fahrenheit is what they highly recommend. Um, and then take it out, put it in your stash of masks, carry on about your day. But the one thing he really hammered was you wear the mask out once, it needs to get washed. Don't put it in your bag. Don't wear it again another day. If you wear it, you wash it. He said, think of it like a pair of underwear. You wouldn't wear your underwear two days in a row. Don't wear your mask two days in a row. Now, I have been making masks for friends and family, and I make sure to include in my note to them, you wear it once, you wash it once, and here's how you wash it. Please be safe. And the way I end up making the masks, I will sit and I will jam out the mask in a full one day. I will sit, I will cut and sew and press and finish, and then it goes straight into my washing machine into the laundry bag. And then from my washer, straight into my dryer. And then from my dryer, I put on gloves and a mask, and I take it directly out of the dryer. I fold it so it looks nice, and then I put it into a plastic bag and seal it shut. And then I write a note and pack it up and send it out. And to remind the person that when they receive said mask, they need to wash it again. Yes, I did sanitize it after I had made it, but they still need to wash it again. Because it's gone through the postal service, it's gone through my house, and it's gotten them. So those are a couple of things I wanted to make sure that you were also assimilating and distributing. Da, 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 da. Distributing to the rest of the Borg. That is our hive mind of Craftlet. And I hope you're having a better day than I am because I literally just got cut off by a car in traffic. Really, person? Really? <sighs> more craft. I need more Craftlet. I hope you're having a great day, Heather. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. And then Tara also is sharing with you uh, a YouTuber that has come up several times on the Thursday night, uh, and I think once or twice on the Tuesday morning, Thursday night Zoom book chats, uh, Bernadette Banner. And if you haven't heard of her yet, you will again soon, and you will understand why after you listen to Tara. Hello, Heather. I stumbled across an individual on YouTube who I think would deeply interest the Craftlet listeners to peruse her selection of videos that she has put forth for us to enjoy. Her name is Bernadette Banner, B-A-N-N-E-R, and she is a YouTube costumer, I'm going to say that. She is an individual living in Manhattan in her 
apartment with her guinea pig, Cesario, adorable, and she is a historical seamstress. She goes about making items of clothing to add to her everyday wardrobe from the 1800s and forward, primarily Victorian-era items from the 1890s and forward. And she makes them by hand-sewing about 80% of the items in question. And the other 20%, she actually has an 1891 Singer Hand Crank Sewing Machine that is beautiful and actually functions and works, and she uses it. Um, the current playlist I am ravishing now is her Lady Sherlock, where she makes an ostrich coat. Um, she makes combination undergarments. She makes a waistcoat, and she also makes the deer hunter cap. It's amazing. I love her so much. She has a delightful vocabulary to enjoy. She ends up going to uh, London almost on the regular for her to visit with Kathy Hay, who happens to be the power force behind Foundations Reveal, which is an online, I want to say college functioning type learning school. I can't even think of the word. Foundations Revealed goes into a lot of extant garment constructions and a lot of historical clothing conservation and basically revealing how these items were made and maintained. And no, Victorian ladies did not have a 14-inch waist. Most of them had a 24-inch waist, by the by, and their hips were about 55 inches wide because of padding. Anywho, Bernadette Banner is an individual we would like to involve in our craft biosphere because in high school everyone's oh Romeo and Juliet and oh Harry Potter and oh Twilight and she's like no no Jane Eyre you need to read Jane Eyre it's Victorian and gruesome and deep and feeling and why are you reading this fluff and she's one of us I love it I am devouring her constantly when I can with the brain space and I think the Craftlet listeners would enjoy her, too. Again, Bernadette Banner on YouTube. Enjoy. Um, I was listening to the latest episode, catching the beginning bits so that I'm all caught up on the what's what and the who's who and the where's happening, which. And you're talking about your t-shirt quilt. I happen to also trudging through three t-shirt quilts. <clears throat> That's right. Three of them. Oh, man. And, um... One thing I'm noticing, too, about T-shirts that have smaller logos on them is that some of them will be too worn to actually use in the quilt themselves. And so what I'm doing is I'm cutting off the smaller logo from the worn-out T-shirt and sewing it onto one of the nicer T-shirts that, again, has a small logo on it and using them like patches, like badges, on the other shirt with a small logo. One that actually happened was a t-shirt that had daddy's little what was it daddy's little hellraiser on the front of it and it was a it was a t-shirt for a baby it's a horror movie genre t-shirt it's hilarious but um that one ended up going onto a powerpuff girls shirt where it just said powerpuff girls across the front of it and i was like okay well that's kind of plain and a little bit boring but then it has a a patch sewn on one side all 
such tilt to it that says Daddy's Little Hellraiser. And the other one says, I like cats. They bite people who are mean. What? <laughs> but I thought that was an interesting uh, an interesting point of, of mention was that you can cut the smaller logos off of the larger shirts and put them on more plain shirts that don't have anything else on them as patches, like you would a, the back of a rally jacket or things like that nature. It's very punk. It's very me. I love doing it. <laughs> but, again, I've got three of those T-shirts to get through, or three of those quilts to get through. Oy, it's going to be a bit. Anywho, I hope you're still having a great day, Heather. It's only been about an hour since I called you last. <laughs> I will talk to you very soon. Bye. And that is excellent advice, I think, on the T-shirt quilt making. I was able to show the uh, about a third of it on Thursday night's book chat this week. And I am doing the leading, so it looks like stained glass. And it's tricky, but not impossible. And there are many times when I have been very glad that t-shirt material is stretchy. And there have been several times where I'm glad I am not afraid to hand sew in order to baste things together. But either way, I should be able to share pictures with you next week. And that is it. I hope you have a great week. Please stay well, be nice to each other, be good to yourself, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com premium or via patreon.com craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.